Thanks, Krista. Well, if you have your Bible, open again to Daniel 5. We've already read the entire chapter this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at this message that I've entitled, The Handwriting on the Wall. Daniel chapter 5. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right into our time together this morning. Father, thank you so much for your mercy alone that covers us from our sins, our trespasses. Thank you for making us alive together with Christ. And as we study this passage this morning, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight on lessons that we can learn so that we can live a life that would honor and glorify you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, born on August the 15th, 1769, Napoleon Bonaparte arguably became the greatest military leader that France has ever known. In 1799, he was installed as the first consul of France, and in 1802, he, made, he was made consul for life. In 1804, he was crowned as the emperor of the French. In the first decade of the 19th century, he turned the armies of the French Empire against every major European power and dominated Europe through a series of military victories. He maintained France's sphere of influence by the formation of extensive alliances and the appointment of friends and family members to rule the conquered European countries as French client states. While the invasion of Russia in 1812 marked a turning point in Napoleon's fortunes, it was not until 1815 that Napoleon was actually undone altogether. After being exiled by his own people to the island of Elba in 1814, Napoleon escaped and he regathered what was left of his army and marched upon the French capital in Paris. He won that battle, and upon his return to power, Napoleon faced an immediate threat and resolved to attack the British, Prussian, Belgian, and Dutch armies before other powers could come to their assistance. He marched north into Belgium, and there he met his match at the Battle of Waterloo on June the 18th, 1815. The Battle of Waterloo, named after the location where it was fought, Waterloo, Belgium was a sound defeat for the French army and the end of Napoleon's career. The British, Belgians, Dutch, and Germans lost 15,000 casualties, while the French suffered 25,000 dead and wounded, along with 8,000 prisoners. Napoleon was taken captive by the British and was kept on the island of St. Helena, where he died six years later. Even Napoleon met his Waterloo, has become a common phrase to remind us that every great leader will at some point face his final defeat. This morning, you may not think of yourself as a great leader like Napoleon, but every husband in this room has been asked to be a leader to lead your wife and your family in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to lead them in your service Every mom is responsible for helping lead her children to walk in the light of God's word. Every Christian here today has been commanded by God to lead others to the cross where Jesus died so that by his life he may save sinners from hell. No matter how big or small, every Christian this morning is called to be a leader of some sort for the glory of God. And the lessons that 
we need to learn this morning are lessons that we'll find in the pitfalls of mistakes that were made by this world leader, Belshazzar. This is what we want to look at this morning because Belshazzar's kingdom ended. In opposition to that, we have the king of Jesus Christ who sits on the throne of David because Jesus has conquered every foe. And Jesus rules in the hearts of his people. And Jesus is our shining light. And at the second coming, we will see Jesus return as he continues his kingdom. And so this morning, we need to just be reminded that there is no king like Jesus. Men try to conquer. Men try to hold on to their positions of power. Men boast in their achievements. But men also fall. And as we examine Daniel 5 this morning, we will learn of an ancient emperor who fell into the pitfall of pride when he met his Waterloo. We will see that this arrogant king met his match not on the battlefield, but in the banqueting hall of his own royal palace with the handwriting on the wall. This unbelievable drama unfolds for us, and what we'll look at this morning is five major headings that will teach us to heed the message of the handwriting on the wall. If you're taking notes, you'll see the first heading says this, the revelry is delighted in, verses one through four. We've already read a little bit about King Belshazzar, who was thought to have been the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over the Babylonian Empire, which was the world's superpower of the day. The Israelites were in exile in Babylon as they had disobeyed God's word time and time again. And so in 586, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and conquered Israel and drug them into exile. Daniel chapter 1 records how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these, these godly young men, chose not to defile themselves with the king's food, and it was said of them that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Daniel chapter 2 records the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember there was this large statue with a head of fine gold and a chest and arms of silver its middle and thighs were made of bronze, its legs were made of iron, and its feet were made of part iron and part clay. This was a prophecy of the future kingdoms that would all crumble in succession from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace for not bowing down to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, Daniel chapter 4, recorded how Nebuchadnezzar's pride was exposed and he was humbled to dwell with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that it was the most high God of the Bible who will have an everlasting dominion and it is God's kingdom that will endure from generation to generation. And this brings us up to today's chapter that we'll be looking at, Daniel chapter 5 and the handwriting on the wall. And so the first thing I want you to take notice of, that first blank there, if you are following along, says the king's indifference. The king's indifference there in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Now the events of Daniel chapter 5 are thought to have happened some 20 to 30 years later from what has happened in Daniel 1 through 4. 
the kingdom has now passed from Nebuchadnezzar to his son Nabonidus, and now presumably to his grandson, the king here in Daniel 5, King Belshazzar. And what you may not realize is that two years previous to this very night, Cyrus, the king of Persia, had attacked Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, in an open battle and beat him badly. And so because of the defeat of the Babylonians, their kingdom had not been conquered, they just lost this one battle, they retreated into the city, which was a fortress there in Babylon. It was thought to have been this impenetrable city. But the Medes and the Persians pursued, and now they have a full-fledged siege on this powerful city. And a siege is a, a military operation whereby the enemy surrounds the city, cutting off all of the essential supplies with the aim of starving out those in the city to eventually have to surrender because of weakness and inability to access food and water. But Babylon had it all. Herodotus described its fortifications as 120 stadia square, which is about 15 square miles, surrounded by a large moat, and it was defended by a wall that was 82 feet thick. That's thicker than from here to the back of the room. This wall that was 82 feet thick also was 330 feet high. That's like a football field straight up in the air. So these are massive walls. And if that wasn't enough, if someone somehow got through those walls, there was a maze of interior walls with no less than 100 bronze fortified, uh, fortified gates, bronze fortified gates. And as we shall see, the Persian troops did actually breach the walls of that city, but only by a surprise strategy. Now, not only did Babylon have its outer defenses, but it had access to water as well. The mighty Euphrates River actually ran from north to south under the city walls and right through the city center. And on top of that, it had been said by more than one historian that there was enough supplies in the city of Babylon that they could withstand the siege for over 20 years. And so with this information, the indifference of the Babylonians, though they were in siege, towards the Persians, we understand why maybe Belshazzar seemed to be so indifferent on this particular, in this particular setting. History has recorded uh, for us this interesting story. One historian writing this, quote, the Babylonians, however, cared not a whit of the Persian siege. Mounting upon battlements that crowned their walls, they insulted and jeered as they looked down at the Persians. One even shouted to them and said, why do you sit there, Persians? Why don't you go back to your homes? Till mules give birth, you will not take our city. And for those of you who aren't familiar with mules, it's a cross between a horse and a donkey, and it's thought to have been, it's sterile, so it can't reproduce. So they're just kind of mocking the Persians, saying, look, until mules have baby mules, you're never you'll never take this city. So they were filled with pride, and they were feeling pretty good about the fact they would never lose their city. I mean, this city had not been stormed for a thousand years, and it's certainly not going to happen on Belshazzar's watch. Now, what can we learn from this? Well, I would say that there are times that we think nothing bad will ever happen to us. 
We think in our own pride that because nothing bad has ever happened to us before, that somehow we can withstand any foe and any difficulty. And it may cause us to be indifferent to the reality that we are all under attack, that every moment of every day we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it may cause us to think, well, as a Christian, I would never fall into adultery, or I would never fall into drunkenness, or I would never fall into you fill in the blank. It could be any type of sin of anger or materialism or just getting uh, cold in your heart towards the things of God. And we've got to be reminded this morning that we need to be sober-minded. First Peter 5.8, we need to be watchful. We need to know that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. And so if you think you're not going through difficulty, again, just think about the Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who around the world are facing imminent danger. And we know that the same could happen to us, and it's already happening. Our society is decaying. So don't be lulled into the comfort of your home, and don't be lulled into the, the comfort of your life. Don't pretend there's not a war going on for your soul. And for the souls of your children, we need to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, we need to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, Ephesians 5, 6, or 6 Ephesians 6, 18. And so not, not only is this king indifferent, we see he's not really affected by the danger around him. He's not affected by the, what's going on outside of his walls, and he also seems to indulge on what's available inside the walls of Babylon. In fact, your next blank says the king's indulgence. So he's indifferent towards the outside danger, and now he's indulging to what he has accessible to him on the inside. The verse, uh, verse 1 there says that he's, he's having that great feast with a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, ancient monarchs took great pleasure in hosting great banquets and displaying their wealth and their splendor. It was something that was expected of them. It was something that they would do from time to time to show their might. And archaeologists tell us that there were halls in the city of Babylon adequate for gatherings like this or even larger. Thousand plus people gathered together in one setting. This feast was a microcosm of the world system that focused on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I mean, there's some things that just never change. I mean, listen to me. If you provide the booze and free food, even today, you can have as many people come to your party as, the, as will come. Right? You just got to put it all out there for them, and they'll come. And so the question is, well, why this party at this time of Belshazzar? Why now? Well, some say that Belshazzar had just become king recently and wanted to celebrate his new position. Uh, others suggest that maybe he's celebrating his birthday. And still others say that he, he was trying to keep the morale high in the midst of a siege that nobody would ever harm the great Babylonian empire. He was trying to drown out the potential fears and uneasiness of his people by promoting frivolous and sensual pleasures. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with the like? 
that you struggle in the midst of adversity and in the midst of fears, trying to somehow drown those out and easing the pain? Do you struggle to turning to alcohol in order to somehow drown out your miseries? Do you turn to some type of drug? You'd be amazed how many people uh, abuse prescription medication. Uh, do you turn to some type of use of recreational marijuana? Do you retreat to your comfort food at night? Right? I'm serious, right? What is it that you're looking for comfort in? It's what, whatever you're looking for comfort in to help you get rid of the pressures of this world could be a potential stumbling block for you. It's 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so the Lord, I think through studying in Daniel 5 this morning, just wants to remind us that it's God who's our deliverer. You'll never find delivery in your money or in America or in our military or in your 401k. You'll never find ultimate deliverance in that. We must find our deliverance in the Lord. It's Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. What are you trusting in today that helps you feel secure? Because if it's anything outside of Christ, you're missing the boat. And whatever it is that you are trusting in could come crashing down. And so we see this king's indifference to what's going on outside the world, his indulgence to the things he has access to. Then verses 2 through 4, your next blank says the king's irreverence. The king's irreverence. Look at verses 2 through 4. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and out of the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So we're here to see now the king's irreverence. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, as I mentioned earlier, the temple in Jerusalem, 586 B.C. But before he did... He had removed these gold and silver vessels. Talks about that in 2 Kings 25, 15. That the fire pans also and the bowls, what was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was silver as silver. And so if you go back even further into 1 Kings chapter 7, then you could read how Solomon had all of these utensils and basins and cups made of gold and silver in order to glorify God. And some of them were even to sit on the table beside the bread of the presence as a testimony to the holiness of a living God. And now this pagan king has taken these same utensils that was to be used for holy use and has defiled them and is irreverent as he's having this party, that's a complete blasphemous scene. Listen to how Puritan Matthew Henry describes this occasion, quote, drunken worshipers who are not men but beasts are the most proper for the service of dunghill deities that are not gods but devils. They have erred through wine 
They drank wine and praised their idol gods as if they had been the founders of their feast and the givers of all good things to them. Close quote. Because what are we seeing here? This is just plain out idolatry. They are worshiping the gods, plainly written, verse 4, of gold and of silver. Do you see the progression here in these first few verses from indifference to indulgence, from indulgence to irreverence, from irreverence to idolatry? That's how sin works. We just kind of become indifferent to the world. We indulge on the things that make us comfortable. Then we become irreverent as we steep into deep sin. And then we're just plain out committing idolatry. Uh, Are the things that God has intended for holy use, are you using them to glorify God or are you using them to serve the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the boastful pride of life? How about your eyes? How about your feet? And how about your hands? How about your resources? How about your time? Do you use what God's given you to glorify him as holy unto the Lord or in some sensual pleasure that would be sinful and an abomination to God? Well, now that we've seen the revelry of Babylon, let's move on to our second heading this morning, the writing on the wall. And first we'll see here the king's response. The king's response, verses 5 through 7, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So what's the king's response to the handwriting on the wall? It's alarm. It's astonishment. Uh, This occurrence in the banqueting hall may have transpired something like this. Quote, the king stopped taking in mid-sentence and abruptly gasped for air. He only inhaled once and then there was an odd pause as all the blood instantly rushed from his head to the lowest part of his extremities. The king almost fell to the floor and his feet felt like lead. His knees, however, were much lighter, almost like two ping pong balls being knocked together. One by one, throughout the banquet hall, you could hear the forks and the knives being put down with a clank against the plates, and every conversation ceased, and every eye focused, and every mind marveled at the hand without a body writing on the wall. That's what maybe it might have felt like to have been there that very night. What a scene this must have been, and yet the king immediately called in the wise men of the day, expecting them to do their duty and serve the king, and even offered them a handsome reward up to being the third most powerful person in the kingdom. And so let's look next at the wise men's response. Your next blank, the wise men's response, verses 8 and 9. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Now, the words that were written on the wall here in Daniel 5 were written in Aramaic. 
Many, many tackle parson. We've already seen that later in the chapter. It's in Aramaic. And it may be that these men were too drunk to have been able to read this particular Aramaic script. And even if they could have written, uh, read it, they for sure would not have been able to interpret it. It would have literally read like this, number, number, way, divide. And why would you want to ask a lot of pagans anyway to interpret something that God wrote? That would be like trying to ask a lot of pagans to interpret the Bible, which is exactly what happens when we allow unbelieving scientists to tell us about creation or unbelieving liberal scholars to tell us what the Bible says or what it means, or the culture, your teacher, your friends, your neighbor, to tell you what's right or wrong. God's word is the only authority, and get this, only true Christians can properly read the word of God and interpret the word of God, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, apply the word of God. No other unbeliever can do that. They can make hypotheses, they can make best guesses, but they can't really be transformed by it unless they bow the knee to Christ to really see what it is that God says and what that means and how that is to be applied in our life. Well, enough about that. Let's move on to see in our drama here what happens next. We see the queen's, the queen mother's response, the queen mother's response, verses 10 through 12, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever, and let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom there is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So what's the queen mother's response? We see that she's more matter-of-fact about the whole matter. She seems to maybe to be a little indifferent herself. She's just kind of really coolly explaining what she thinks should be done. She reminded the younger king that it was his father, or that could also be translated as grandfather, that Nebuchadnezzar, who had called on Daniel before, and Daniel had interpreted dreams for him. That Daniel, Daniel had done this not once, but on two different occasions. And I love how the queen does acknowledge here that Daniel was filled with light and with understanding and with knowledge that belongs to Daniel. And I think that's really true of every Christian. If you're in Christ today, then you have the light of the world living in you. And you have the understanding which comes from God enlightening your mind to understand Scripture. And you've been given wisdom which, which you can exp, uh, apply with the help of the Holy Spirit in difficult situations. This is the man, Daniel, and I believe for every Christian, we also have access to light and to understanding and to wisdom. Now, the Hebrew name Daniel means God is judge, and you would think that Belshazzar would have already have thought about Daniel and thought about the fact that Daniel served a great God who had judged his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, but too often younger leaders are too concerned about themselves and the present that they forget that they need to study and learn from the past. And so far, we, we see, we're seeing here that this king is reaching out for help, but the king's response is just outright fear. 
and he really wants to know what, what this handwriting says. And so he calls in all of the smartest people of the empire, and they couldn't even read their own language, much less interpret it. And now he has the queen mother who says, I know a man who can read it, so you should call upon him. And so that's what we see next in our third heading. The request is made to basically bring Daniel in. So the request is made to, for Daniel to come in and, and to interpret this dream. And so in verse 13 and 14, we see Daniel is identified. Daniel is identified, verses 13 and 14. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light, understanding, and excellent wisdom are found in you. Notice these same three words are used again to describe Daniel as having light and as having understanding and having excellent wisdom. And so they identify this same Daniel and bring him in. And then in verse 15, they inform Daniel of the problem. Daniel is informed, verse 15, now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this handwriting and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Now, this is a time where Daniel could have really been prideful. He could have been like, well, I'm the only man who can read that, interpret it for you. Again, human wisdom falls short of being able to give divine wisdom and instruction and so man's wisdom is always foolish. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. The intellect of man is impotent. The best effort of man is barren of any ability to know the writing of God without God the Holy Spirit illuminating his mind. And that's why we see these enchanters were neither able to read the handwriting on the wall or interpret it. They needed a man of God. They needed somebody they could trust. They needed a prophet. They needed someone who knew Yahweh. They needed somebody with a record that they knew, knew what he's talking about. And so they offer him this incredible reward. Your next blank, Daniel has offered a reward. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And so not only is Daniel going to be able to read the handwriting, not only is Daniel going to be able to interpret the writing, but Daniel in God's wisdom and power is going to solve the problem. And that's what godly men and godly women do. They read the writing of God. They are able to properly interpret the words of God. And they are able with the Spirit's help to solve problems in their lives. The world can't do it for you. Secular psychology will never resolve your anxiety. You need a man or woman of God to point you to the word of God so that you can read the Bible for yourself. And after you bow the knee to Christ and become a Christian, you can work through the issues that you need to in your life. And we see here that the king may not have wanted to offer a Hebrew such valuable prizes and an esteemed position, but this shows how desperate Belshazzar is. Like Naaman offered payment for his healing in 2 Kings 5, or like Simon the magician offering the apostles money so that he may be filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 8, Belshazzar was willing to go to great lengths to benefit from this godly man's wisdom. And this leads us to our fourth heading, number four, the reply Let's look first at the humility 
of Daniel. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I love this response by Daniel. Right? He could have played it up again. He could have said, how much are you willing to pay? What else will you give? But instead, Daniel's response was like, I don't want your money. Give your purple robe to somebody else. Give that position of power to anybody. I don't really care about that stuff. But what I do want is the opportunity to preach the word of God to you. And so Daniel tactfully reviews some history of Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, someone Daniel had previous experience with. And so Daniel talks for a moment about King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 18 through 21, and we see how Daniel starts off by giving the story and the account of the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. This had happened just one chapter earlier in Daniel 4, but Daniel recounts it here, O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that, the, they, that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Kind of a reminder, really, when, that Nebuchadnezzar only had what he had because it was given to him by God. It's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? God gave you your life. God gave you that ability. God gave you your income. God gave you whatever it is that you have. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't acknowledge that. And so he went crazy. But he didn't just go crazy. Some people would point at this as schizophrenia. It's possible. But it's, notice it's not just something that naturally happened because of a chemical imbalance. This is something that happened as the judgment of God. The judgment of God was upon Nebuchadnezzar's life. And Daniel is trying to say something like, young man, Belshazzar, you should have learned from those who've gone before you. I mean, we see the same principle in 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But Belshazzar would not repent like Nebuchadnezzar eventually did. In fact, next we see, your next blank, the haughty pride of Belshazzar, verses 22 through 24, we read that, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand your, is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And so Daniel, again, I appreciate how he's not afraid to confront this king face to face. He hasn't even gotten to the interpretation yet. Remember, they, they brought him in to say, read the handwriting on the wall and interpret it for us. And Daniel's like giving the sermon before the sermon. 
kind of reminding him of like the history of his grandfather, what he should have been learning, how he should have already been humbled, and because the message that he's about to give is going to be a detrimental message to the kingship of Belshazzar. And he says, we should just be reminded anyway that Belshazzar is serving gods who have no power. He's serving the gods of, 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 of silver and gold, where Psalm 115 says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they do not hear, noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So he's trusting in the wrong gods, lowercase g, where he should be trusting in the one and only true God, capital G, right? Don't, don't mess with God. Don't mess with God's holy things. To mess with God's holy things or to mess with God's character. And it is because of your pride that God has written you an inscription. Pride always goes before the fall. And so we see next here the holy judgment of God. The holy judgment of God. Here it comes, verses 25 through 28. And this is the writing that was inscribed many, many Tekel and Parson, this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Warren Wiersbe writes here, quote, God had turned the banqueting hall into a courtroom and the king was about to be declared guilty. And so we see these words, many, many, repeated a couple of times. I told you already they're Aramaic. They refer to a weight, but in the verb form, as seen here, it means to number or to reckon. And so he's saying, number your days or your number's up or you're going about to face your reckoning. And he says that twice, many, many. And then tekel means to weigh. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your good works didn't measure up to the holiness of God. So what's going to happen, parson, or you parson in the NASB, you're going to be broken in two. You're going to be divided. In fact, your kingdom is going to be given to the Medes and to the Persian, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And we see Daniel's interpretation from God clearly spelled out. God is saying to Belshazzar, you thought you were all that. Right? You thought you were a good king, but you're not a good king because you're not a God-fearing king. And God is saying to Belshazzar, again, your number's up. This is the day of your reckoning. Judgment is here. So what can we learn from that today? Well, maybe that's the message you need to hear today. Maybe on this very day, in the first Lord's Day of this year, you need to hear many, many tekel parson. You need to be reminded that your days are numbered, that your life is but a vapor. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. Maybe this is the year you die. Just saying, the Bible is serious when it comes to us not presuming upon God the life that we have. Right? It kind of reminds me of that story of the parable about the rich man who thought he had plenty and so he kept building bigger barns. And then that very night, his life was required from him. Luke chapter 12. My friend, God is a holy judge. And he is about to execute his sovereign rule over this impenetrable city of Babylon. He had given Babylon many chances to repent. And Belshazzar should have learned from those before him, but he did not. 
and Belshazzar's moral and spiritual life were weighed on the scales of God's justice, and Belshazzar was found wanting. He came up short, and so his punishment was death, and all he had was to be given to someone else. Your time is up. You too have been found on the scales of perfection and come up short, and so your life and my life, according to the wages of sin, is death should be taken from us. The same is true for us today. We, we need Christ. Unless we're clothed by the righteousness of Christ, we will be found wanting. God's judgment can be delayed like it was with Nebuchadnezzar for one year, or it can be instant on this very night. Belshazzar's life will be taken from him. The final heading, number five, the revelation is fulfilled. Let's look at Daniel's reward, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So after this, he gives Daniel his reward. Though Daniel never asked for it, said, keep your reward, give it to another, because Daniel knows it's short-lived. Listen to me. The rewards of this world are short-lived lived. You may think they last a lifetime and they could be taken away from you in a moment. Don't put your stock in the world system of reward. Daniel didn't care about it. Then we see verse 30, Belshazzar's death. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Now that's kind of a short statement, and so we have the privilege of also looking into history not that history is inspired or infallible, but there were great records kept by the Babylonian Empire as they went out of power and the next world power came into play, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so history has recorded for us exactly what happened that very night as the city had been under a siege, as we talked about earlier, by the Medo-Persian army led by Ugbaru. This ingenious and innovative general diverted the water from the Euphrates River to run to a nearby lake. Remember, there was the moat that went around the city, 15 square miles, and there was the river that flowed through the city center. And so he dug a diversion that took the moat water and, and from the Euphrates River and ran it into a nearby lake. And this allowed the water level to drop low enough so that the soldiers could wade through the remaining water and get in under the wall. Since this area of the wall was unguarded, they slipped in unnoticed and passed through the necessary gates and conquered the city without a fight. In fact, jot down Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. You can read that on your own, but there's another prophecy saying just that. I'll read a portion of it to you. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level exalted places. I will break in pieces of the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I believe that's a reference to this very military account where God's saying, Cyrus, I've raised you up. Yes, you're a wicked king. Yes, you're an evil king, but I've raised you up to knock off Babylon. 
And then later, the Greeks knock off the Medo-Persian Empire. Later, the Roman Empire implodes, and that's where we are today. But the idea is all this prophecy is given exhaustively, extensively throughout the book of Daniel. And so God is the one who does these things on a grand scale. And if God can do these things specifically on a grand scale, then he can also orchestrate every detail of your life. I mean, if God's able to predict and prophesy and ordain and orchestrate all this stuff that happens just exactly according to his plan, then certainly God is able to control every single facet, every single part of your life. Verse 31, Darius's rule and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now, many commentators believe that Darius was not a name but a title of this new leader. Darius was a Mede. The kingdom of Babylon was now given to the Medo-Persian hands. And this is all part of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Everything happens according to God's plan. Nations rise and nations fall according to God's plan. Kings rise and fall according to God's plans. And you and I have much to learn from history and from the Bible about what it means to oppose God and what it means to humble ourselves before God's mighty hands. And so my question to you this morning is, have you seen the handwriting on the wall? Would God say of you this morning, many, many tekel parson? Have you bowed the knee to Christ Have you met your Waterloo? Have you determined to follow God and his word throughout 2019? Are you reading the word of God and asking the Holy Spirit to help you interpret it day by day so you would heed the warning in scripture about sin and selfishness and pride? And would you this morning bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? We're not asking you to be more moral this year. We're asking you to repent of your sins, to be born again, to be radically changed from the inside out, that your kingdom would be God's kingdom and that your desires would be his desires and that whatever it is that you do, that you would be filled with the light and the understanding and the wisdom of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that only comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is foolish. Every other pursuit will leave you lacking. But if you'll come to Christ this morning, I believe that God can take your life And he can give you hope and strength and encouragement that you would be able to read God's word and interpret God's word and to live out God's word. A couple of take-home applications here would be learn from the lesson of Belshazzar that God is the ultimate sovereign and not you. Right? If nothing else, you're not in control. You're not in charge. You don't have the say-so in your life. Learn from Belshazzar what he did not learn from Nebuchadnezzar lest you have to be made like a wild animal and live out under the dew of heaven for a year, like Nebuchadnezzar, lest your life be taken from you in an instant. Learn our lesson this morning that God is the ultimate sovereign and not us. Number two, look for the handwriting on the wall in your life through studying God's holy word. So I'm just saying if this was God's word given to man, many, many Tekel Parson, then we certainly have additional words given by God to us as believers of both warning and of great hope that we would take seriously what the word of God says and that we would order our life by God's word. Lastly, live for Christ today 
for you never know when your life on earth is over. Another major lesson to live today as if today was your last, as if this week was your last, as if 2019 was your last year, that you would heed the wisdom and the word of God and that you would see the handwriting on the wall and that you would come to a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would bow your knee to him and be filled with his love and his mercy and his grace and make 2019 a year where he would be glorified in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at Daniel chapter 5 this morning. So much information, such a, a big story for us to tackle on a Sunday morning. And yet, God, we've just seen here today so many truths that we want to be reminded of and so many awesome things that you've done, even in the Medo uh, Persian kingdom, conquering the Babylonian kingdom, how you raise up kings and you take down kings. And so, God, in the normalcy of our lives, I pray that we would just stand here today amazed at the power of God, that we would be humbled today by the work and the power of Almighty God, that we would be on our knees today repenting of known sin as we know that we're, our life is on the, the, the scales of, 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 of the scripture and we're found wanting, that there's no one perfect, there's no one righteous, not even one. And yet we thank you for the beauty of the gift of Christ today, that we would see Jesus in all of his glory, knowing that he ultimately sits on the king's throne uh, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we want to bow the knee to Jesus today. We want to worship King Jesus today. We want our life to be ordered by Jesus today. We don't need the rewards of this world. God, we want to we just have more of you. We want to walk in that light and in that understanding and in that wisdom that you give us. And so help us as a church, God, to heed the lessons that you want us to heed about the handwriting on the wall, that we may be radically transformed and leave here this day thinking about how we could depend upon you greater and to please you with our life, with our thoughts, and with our words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.